0: Howdy, y'all. Remember us? This is the Managing Up Crew. We're recording a slight uh, pre-roll message here for an episode that we're about to drop in your podcast feed. Uh, November was the last time we released a podcast, but we've uh, got on and had conversations almost every week since then um, and recorded quite a few episodes. Uh, We've got a a new episode for you that we've just recorded uh, that's coming up next as soon as I'm done talking, and After that, we've got a few other episodes that in the, in the can that we recorded uh, last fall and over the winter, uh, and then we'll be back to our uh, regular regularly scheduled podcasts every two to three weeks.
1: Howdy, y'all. You're listening to The Managing Up Show, a podcast about leading and managing in the world of technology. I'm your host, Nick Means, and with me this week are Brandon Hayes. Hello. And Travis Weissgood.
0: Howdy, y'all. So... A few weeks ago, uh, we were chatting about advice that we have received throughout our career um, and the good, the bad, the ones that have stuck with us. Um, And I was sharing some advice that I had gotten uh, when I got my first shot at a VP of engineering role. Um, Like a lot of folks, uh, this was a role that I was uh, getting a promotion into. Uh, I wasn't being hired into it for the first time. Um, And coming from a, a director of engineering role, Uh, The outgoing uh, chief product officer, who at the time was my boss, uh, pulled me aside and said, I got a piece of advice for you. Um, As you move into this role, one of the things that you need to do uh, is focus more on the greater good of the team and the company and what you're doing in service of that than the individual. Um, Now, it wasn't to completely discount the individual, um, but I needed to shift my Uh, the way I weighed what I was uh, deeming important to focus more on the, the outcome at the company level uh, than any one individual or any one team. Um, And in a conversation about that, we had a lot of back and forth between the three of us uh, about this a few weeks ago. Um, And I just wanted to open this up and have a conversation as you've moved into uh, more senior roles out of more senior roles and back into them in your careers Um, what do you think about this shift that happens where you start to put the, the, the resource part of the argument in when you're thinking about individuals on your team? Uh, And even the, uh, when you're hitting that director, senior director role, when you start thinking about resources as the resource that focuses on this product or this feature, um, and now you're starting to think about them as, as not just individual resources on a team, but collections, uh, of teams of resources to, to tackle a problem. Uh, how is that, has that, is that something that, that y'all have seen, uh, that y'all have done? Um, uh, and what's been your experience in that, that realm?
1: I mean, it's funny that you went straight to the word resource because I remember the first time that I slipped and accidentally used that word and it felt really bad the first time that I heard that come out of my mouth. For like sure, I heard it, and it was like you know, record scratch, car crash. <laughs> what just happened? How
0: you might it, be asking how we got here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and it was, you know, it was, it was a bit of a a mental crisis for me that I had gotten to that point so quickly after moving into a, a senior management role, um, because it is a a very natural sort of way of thinking that is as you're responsible for guiding a larger group of humans, you kind of get pulled into just naturally by, just by virtue of the fact that you're leading a larger group of of humans that is, is hard to conceptualize on an individual basis sometimes.
2: So Travis, I have a question. Uh, What was the role you were moving out of and into that, that suddenly you needed this additional coaching?
0: Uh, Title wise, it was a a director of engineering uh, to a VP of engineering. Okay. Uh, conceptually, at the company, very very similar with a very quick horizon to when that was about to change in big ways. Hmm. Um, in terms of visibility within the company, so my day to day stayed stayed very similar. In terms of visibility into the company, I was now the person that was that the other parts of the company were coming to, um, and that's one of the big the big shifts I've seen when you go from that director role or um, in, in some. Organizations, even senior director, into that VP or C-suite role, is now it's not just the people in your org that are coming to you. You have a a pretty big responsibility and pretty big visibility into all of the other orgs, and now you're thinking about how uh, engineering feeds into the goals of those other organizations.
2: Yeah, I can see how um, at promotion time, or you know, when you when your role changes in some perceptible way. This is really a salient question: of Hey, what is my relationship to the individuals that I that I work around now? Mm-hmm. Um, people, other people perceive it. The power dynamic shifts dramatically. Mm. Um, people behave differently with a vice president in the room than with a director in the room, than with their manager. No, oh, absolutely. Uh, than with a peer, like, and we don't even know why we do it. We just know. We just know something is different. Um, and part of it is that that obligation to see people differently, um, uh, at at those different uh, levels within an organization. I think that's really interesting that somebody noticed that and called it out. Um, my my vantage points on this are somewhat limited because I haven't worked in a lot of senior leadership over large numbers of people. Um, I've run small companies, I've managed small teams, I've run even medium sized teams, but I've never um, I've never managed you know, organizations of large numbers of people, but I have seen a lot of it and I do get a sense. Um, it, it's, it's like medicine uh, where, where when you give people medicine, you don't give an individual, you really want to give an individual treatment, but you're really treating a cohort of people. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is the best thing for 90% of people. And you hope that your doctor knows you and sees you as a human being, Um, But you also know medicine occurs at a cohort level. And so there are some real big shifts that happen um, when you operate at a cohort level. And people inject terms like resource. Um, I heard a really gross one recently where it was like the director of human capital. And I was like, oh, well, that's worse. Congratulations, you found something worse than resource. In their quest to find something better than resource, they found something worse. Why do you just call it like the 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 director of human liquid goo? <laughs> and I've had to give this advice to new managers. And I until you said it in those terms of balancing the needs of the company versus the needs of an individual, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. I just knew it was different. That hey, you're going to feel really compelled to dig in on each individual human being that you're working with, and as a line manager that's beneficial as soon as you're managing other managers that actually becomes a little bit toxic and it gets worse the, the 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 more people and the more levels that exist between you i'm not even sure why that happens like why why does that change why does it uh why does it sort of invert
1: yeah i mean it's it's interesting right because you know i like most people that have gone into one of these managing managers roles, I was promoted from a line manager into that role. So suddenly a lot of the people that I'd been directly managing became one degree removed. And, you know, it's, it's always tempting when you're in that situation and you have that rapport and relationship with folks on that team. When you see something going sideways, just to reach down to the, the ICs on the team and ask them to do this thing that, you know, would make everything all better. Um, but it's a really unhealthy management pattern to do that. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, to manage productively in that situation, you really do need to spend most of your time managing through the manager that leads that team, not through the folks on their team. Now that's not to say you shouldn't have skip levels. You shouldn't talk about the life that they're living on that team and how their manager is managing them. And if there's feedback that you need to deliver, um, but you almost have to have, that, that level of abstraction to manage the team in a healthy way and not to micromanage the individuals on the team around the, the manager that you have in place. But uh, you know it's, it's interesting. Uh, it, it's easy to talk about this in terms of, of what it means for a senior leader who's managing groups of people. Uh, but it's no less true for a line manager. This, this level of abstraction exists at the line manager level as well. And when you're talking about the conversation you have to have with new managers, I think that's what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, it's, um, there is an art to this. And it is actually what makes this job so hard. The job in my mind of a manager is to pull that switch periodically and be like, okay, I need to think about things in terms of resources for a minute. Who's, you know, we have seats on the bus. Who's meeting expectations? What's not currently meeting expectations? What teams are meeting expectations? What are we trying to accomplish and why? Um, and and then turn the, the, the switch back on and be like, okay, well, this is these are people. Some of them are tired. Many of them are burned out. Um, I think this is an extremely pertinent question. I think we should also explore the times in which we live as it relates to this question. Um, but the fact is we still, we work at companies. The companies have needs and being able to toggle that back and forth is hugely um, emotionally laborious but it's a critical aspect of the of the job
0: yeah i think there's also there's a visceral reaction to doing it you mentioned how hard it is to do the first time i think there's a visceral reaction to it that makes that first time or two even harder because people have the reaction that Nick mentioned earlier where he still recalls the meeting he was in when he first used the term resource. (laughs) Um, you have this very, very visceral, visceral reaction. And I think that's coming from a place where the term resource is used almost in a dehumanizing way we're doing it because we don't want to think about the broader consequences of what we're doing. The thing that comes to mind for me is the, the GE model of the, the upper out, like where the bottom what was it, 10%, 20%, 30% every year was automatically fired. Like if you didn't meet it, so everybody was scrambling to get at least the last seat on the bus. Cause they knew they were basically playing musical chairs on the bus as it was going down the road. Um, and that, that can lead to a really toxic environment with a whole other host of problems. Um, but I feel like most people that I've talked to in this space, if they have a, a problem with the term resource specifically, uh, it's because they're used to that dehumanizing aspect of it. Not necessarily the, I need to think about the greater good. It's kind of that idea of of your playing chess and you've got to sacrifice the pawn from time to time. That's a good move every now. And then it's the Bishop that's going to go in for the sacrificial move just because it's what sets up the board correctly. Um, That's the way it works. Sometimes there are people that need to be moved around uh, and changed because that's what the the team needs as a whole to move forward. Um, I think if you're approaching it from that standpoint, I'm looking at a, broader good instead of instead of just a we're gonna rush with everything and damn all the pawns uh, mentality which is more the GE model um, you can do it in a way that you can still hold on to that humanity of the individuals and think of the broader good and know that if somebody's moved around or if somebody you need to make changes in the team you're doing it for a, a bigger picture that has changed in all likelihood.
1: Yeah, you're, you're hitting on an interesting distinction here that I, I hadn't really thought about before. And that's that there there are definitely two flavors of the word resource. Uh, one of them is actively dehumanizing when you're doing something toxic and you know it, and you need to get that off your conscience. Mm-hmm. You need to not think about the, the humans that are involved in that. And then there's the other side where it is more of a, a helpful abstraction that gets you out of thinking in individual mode and more in thinking about in, in team mode so that you can make sort of that broader, greater good sort of calculation and go down that that line of thinking. Um, that's hard when, when you're distinctly thinking about all of the individuals on the team.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the quickest ways to beat somebody that's getting started at chess is when they get caught up in the fact that they've got to protect this piece or that piece or this piece is at, at risk. Um, I mean, you put somebody that doesn't, doesn't play much or doesn't have much experience, you put their queen at risk. It's amazing how many times you can get within five moves of checkmate just with that. That's all it takes because then they become so focused. And I've some early career managers or managers who haven't learned to think about the broader picture. You can do the same thing with whether it's a, there's a change in in what the requirements of the team or the company has that might facilitate or, or uh, necessitate a, a change in your team, um, or a, a person who's outlived their usefulness for whatever reason, uh, whether it's uh, um, the skills are changing and you need different skills, somebody's gotten burned out and isn't taking the steps necessary to get out of that. Um, or some people, and I, I say this as somebody who's had a tendency to do this, uh, stay in a position longer than they should, and now they're they've passed the point of redemption and it's just toxic to the team. Um, And it's no longer good to have that person around. Um, I say that as having been that person more times than I care to
2: count. Yeah. I'm especially sensitive to this because like I'm captain rescue. Like I want to rescue all Mm -hmm. the people and I, and, and I have an, um, not just an affinity for that, but because of my affinity for it, I've developed a very strong set of skills around it. And I became known as sort of the turnaround artist. Like, oh, this give this person your, like, toughest cases. And I think that's really neat. That's a great skill to have developed. But I've become more skeptical of it over time. Because not every situation is a rescue operation. Uh, not every person who is burned out or has, you know, like you said, is, like, <laughs> overextended their stay. They don't like it in this place anymore. And it's like, oh, I can rescue this. Let me turn this around. And it's like, okay, Maybe. You know, like, but, but I would say four times out of five, that's not a great idea.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, you can almost always do it. Uh, Like if you're, if you're skilled at this and the art of helping somebody recover, you can almost always get them out of their tailspin and back to being a productive member of the team for some amount of time. Um, Yes. But the, the question is it's twofold. Number one, how long is this band aid that you've applied actually going to last? And number two, at what cost? Because right. for you as the manager, this takes a ton of time to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: and you're neglecting other things. I think that's the even more important part. Like your this time, this is an oppor- There's an opportunity cost to it. What else are you neglecting? Um, and if you're having to to perform perform a turnaround on somebody, the likelihood that the rest of the team is operating at a hundred percent and could be could go on autopilot is pretty close to nil there's probably other things that you could be addressing in that time so you have to start thinking about it in the is this the best use of my time which is actually as you were describing this and sort of the turnaround are still, something just like jumped out at me in a situation I found myself in in a, a few times in my career uh, where somebody puts in notice and you're like okay I, I can't lose this person right now and you jump into the how can I fix this Um, have either of you fixed it? Um, and for the, the people listening to this, there are air quotes around that Fixed it and got somebody to stay where they have stayed longer than a year post that first, I'm going to turn in my resignation. No. Six months. Maybe for me, it's three and normally about three. it's, It's about three. Yeah. I've done that. Uh, The last time I did it uh, was a, I was in a situation, there were some big transitions going on and I was like, okay, I need you to stay through the summer. Like, I don't want you to leave. I want to have the conversation. How do we fix this to make it good? But I need, can you give me through the summer? What can we do to make this work? Um, What are the the levers that I can pull on to keep you around? Um, And almost like clockwork, I think it was 11 and a half weeks. (laughs) <laughs> they came back in and was like, all right, like th- this is not working. And, and we both went into it knowing that this was very a, a very explicit conversation that we had. Um, I think the, the stats are something like 90% of people who actually turn in their resignation uh, quit within, I, I want to say it's six months, actually do end up quitting within six months if they're talked back from the ledge. No matter what you do, change in title, change in role. Um, if you've gotten to the point that you've actually got a letter of resignation uh, prepared and you go to submit it, you're done. So now really what you're negotiating at this point is how, how long of a notice are you giving me? Um, but that's a healthy way of approaching it.
1: Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's appropriate to have a six-month notice period for a really mm-hmm. critical employee. And, and you can get that six months out of them by compensating them for sticking around for six months. hmm But it's much better when you're upfront about that transaction than both doing the dance that you're trying to save something that's ultimately unsalvageable and you both know it. Yeah,
0: and I think that's a conversation that's enabled by having the thought process of, okay, this is an individual who has very specific needs, wants, desires um, that are not being met in some way or another in this current role. Um, And they play this key role in the broader team. Now, how do we mesh the two of those in a way that the team doesn't suffer and we can set the team up and ensure that the work that's being done is to set the team up uh, for them to no longer be there um, and ensure that this individual gets something of value out of it over the next three months, six months, six weeks sometimes is maybe all it takes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and the challenge in doing that is that we as humans are often unreliable narrators as well, and can't always actually say what it is that's bothering us and would would need to be fixed for us to want to stay in a role. So sometimes trying to fix it's just a fool's errand on the part of a manager.
2: Yeah, it's too many things. And it's usually very many things.
1: Yeah.
0: I would say it's a fool's errand on the part of the individual who, like, well, maybe I could be persuaded to stay. Yeah, <laughs>
1: Yeah. Takes two to tango. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Every time I think of unreliable narrator, I think of the, the scene in Wolf of wall street where they pull back the veil. They'll be like, okay, you can't actually trust what's being said. He's like slowly driving the car back from the club and he (laughs) gets it back in one piece. And five minutes later, he walks out and the car has been totaled in the 200 yards that he drove.
2: Um, you both alluded to something, Nick, you said the word outright and it is transaction. The bottom layer of this thing is a transaction. And that transaction is the bedrock of the relationship. And if that transaction isn't being met, not one other thing matters. Um, if, if you are not fulfilling your end of the bargain for as an employee of the company to generate value in whatever way they have employed you to, to generate value, um, there's nothing that you could do, um, No no amount of niceness you could employ um, no amount of being easy to work with. All, all those things help. They're all nice. Um, and vir- the, the converse is true. All the, all the things that a company layers on top of the employment agreement. But if you're not getting what you want out of the base transaction, um, then it's not working. It won't work. It cannot work. Uh, the tricky thing is you probably have a complicated relationship to that transaction, and you may not even understand it. I'm here because I like the people and because of this and because of that. And that pays all right, but honestly this and and I kind of like this, and you probably have a very cloudy and complicated relationship to your end of the transaction, and the company has a very crisp relationship with your end of the transaction. Um,
1: I, I, I'm gonna pause you there and say kay. at a high enough level of of abstraction, that is true. Yes.
0: I think you're, you're spot on there, but I feel like that's an area where a, uh, a manager, even a director or a new VP could, could get themselves in trouble is when they don't have that understanding as crisp as you're just describing it. That's where you you start to muddy the water when you're not thinking about it in those terms.
2: And also sometimes a company is really bad at articulating that to an individual. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, we need you to do X. And then you do X. And they're like, actually, we meant Y. <laughs> um, I've, seen, I've definitely seen that. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely over generalizing mm-hmm. a bit about how, how well a company might understand that. Um, but at the, at the base of it, though, generally speaking, it is a, it, hey, we are, you are here to generate profit for the company. Mm-hmm. If you are an unprofitable employee, uh, we will figure out a way to remove profit the unprofitable section so that the company overall can remain mm-hmm. profitable on a, on a long enough time scale that's just how it works yeah. um, and your job as a duly elected minister of this process as a manager uh, your job is to facilitate that that is a part of the role
0: so your job is to facilitate it but I would go a step further and say that everybody in the organization's job is to understand the role that they play um, some of the the best separations I've ever had where we've had to let people go have been when they've recognized that. And it's, it's a conversation, Hey, this is the changes we need to make. And they're like, damn, that sucks. But also I would make the same decision if I was in your place. Yeah. Um, Those tend to be the people who have either started things on their own off to the side or want to do that and are already thinking about it in that big picture. Um, But I think that you're doing everybody a favor Uh, If you think about your role, regardless of what it is, if it's a, an individual contributor, manager, uh, uh, manager of managers, uh, officer of the organization uh, to be thinking about that in the terms of, okay, what, what are the transactions that are happening? Are, are the, the goals being met? I mean, you wouldn't, as a, a director or VP responsible for selecting vendors, you're not going to keep paying a vendor who consistently has downtime on the feature that you need. You're going to go find another one. Um, and I mean, that's a very cold way of thinking about it, but if you have people who are not performing, you're not doing anybody any favors by keeping them around. And you're, this is where the, to, to bring it back to the original advice, this is where that original advice comes to comes into play, I believe, you're actively doing a disservice to everyone else in the organization if you're not thinking about people in a context of are they holding up to their end of the bargain?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the first job of any organization is to stay in business. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, that means that every employee in that company, on average, has to deliver more value than the company pays them. Otherwise, the company goes out of business. If if the company is paying more than the average value delivered by its employees, that's not a sustainable business. And so there's a bit of cold, hard truth in that, in that if you have people in the company that aren't pulling their weight, that aren't delivering <clears throat> enough value, then that just means that everybody else has to work that much harder.
2: Yeah. But there there really is a a, a fairness component of that. That's worth bringing up because it's also like, you're not just, it's not an individual relationship between you and a company. It's a mesh relationship of you on a team with the company.
0: Early on in my, my career, I read a book by uh, Chad Fowler, Um, the passionate programmer, I believe was the, the second release of it. Um, And uh, he talks about as a developer, if you want a career in this, one of the best things you can do is start to approach your job, or at least the understanding of your job and how you fit into a company as an MBA? What, what value am I providing? Uh, and what do I need to do to
2: maximize that? There's one more angle I wanted to explore with this because it's more prominent now than ever, and it is hang on, but we are human beings. We are flawed. It's been a rough year and we're all really tired. I think I can speak for everybody. 13
0: months, but who's counting?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would like to know what y'all's experiences are with, with um, work still needs work, but humans are very tired right now. I know I am. So, Nick and Travis, I'm curious to get your thoughts. How are managers right now, from your observation or what you would hope to see, balancing the sort of exceptional human needs that exist right now? Due to you know tiredness from covid like we're all we all have needs that are a little more acute, people are a little more aggravated, people are a little more tired, people need a little more grace, people maybe need a little more vacation. people are starting to get vaccinated and need suddenly need vacation time and I'm hearing things recently saying, "Hey, this whole thing we're at this glut of vacation time coming um we can't actually do that. we can't actually sustain that well oh, I've heard that exact conversation
0: of like yeah. I got somebody who's scheduled some time off, man. I hope they don't have a bad reaction.
2: Cause I need them in the office the next day. <laughs> like it's a, it's a real thing. So how do you, how do you, um, how do you balance that? How do you approach that right now?
0: So I think it's a fool's errand to try to balance it. Um, we're in an exceptional time. Um, I, I God, I hate this word and I can't wait till we can retire it for at least an, another hundred years. Um, we are in unprecedented times. Unprecedented. <laughs> you all like, you knew exactly I knew where uh-huh. I was going with this. Um, <laughs> there is no rule book here. Um, and if you are trying to plan for that and trying to think of like, okay, well how do I, how do I make sure that the team's still able to hit the, the, the deliverables we've got, we're in, I think, every team to some degree, um, unless they're at a company who has just said, ah, we can just coast for a year or two or however long it takes, um, is at a situation where every single team is going to go into that scrappy startup mode where it's okay, how do we actually get this thing out the door? Because this happened, that happened, somebody's. Childcare situation just fell through at the last minute, and all of a sudden, uh, the partners are splitting childcare duty instead of working in the pod that they had had spent two weeks out of the previous three months actually researching and interviewing for to try to figure this out. Um, like, not that I've had this these exact situations happen. <laughs> like, it's it you can't plan for it, and you're wasting mental energy. Um, that we all, like, I think I can speak for just about everyone when I say we all don't have the spare reserves of right now. Um, So the best thing you can do here is to admit that you don't have the mental reserves to try to figure all this out and try to figure out how you can roll with the punches. And I feel like if everyone had done or has done, or maybe optimizes for us. Some of us that are crazy enough to seem to want to do uh, startup life where you're going to have to roll with the punches. Oh, well, hell, I guess we are going to have to ship that feature next week and not in six. Like I thought, um, if you've had to, to live that life, um, I think that's the best preparation you can have. Um, I feel like larger organizations, the people that have, that have sought the safety in that, um, are going to have to figure out how to make this work. Um, and the larger organizations that have managed to recruit and retain people that have that startup experience where uncertainty is part of the game are going to do better because they're going to have those reserves that they can pull on. That's not a, okay, but how do I apply certainty to this? But it's a, okay, how do I actually roll with this? And it's just a slight shifting of how you approach the exact same problem. And you probably end up with a, a very similar outcome, except one of them burns people up. Like, I'm not going to say burns people out, burns them up.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I don't think I know any people managers right now that aren't struggling with burnout to some degree. Just because we are carrying a much higher emotional load than we're used to carrying. And we're having to spend more time for better, for worse, trying to find some sense of balance in all of this and some sense of fairness in all of this, because everybody's circumstances are a little bit different. The company still needs some work to get done, but at the same time, we, we don't, want to dehumanize everybody. We're not going to dehumanize everybody on our team. So as managers, we're hearing everybody's situations. We're trying to help them find a balance where they can still deliver sometimes even just the bare minimum that a company needs them to deliver or encouraging them to go on a leave or something like that. If they just if their situation is just where they can't, trying to help them find a, a productive a productive posture to be in given the circumstances that they're facing outside of work. Um, So that we can preserve that relationship for when these unprecedented times do finally come to an end. And then the other thing that that I'm seeing very clearly as someone who's worked in distributed organizations for 10 years, even people that have historically worked in distributed organizations and were working distributed before the pandemic ever hit, we're getting real lonely. And it's even worse for people that were used to going into an office every day. Because you know, one of the things that you have to do on a regular basis to sustain remote work on a long-term basis is you have to see each other from time to time. And so you know, not, not being able to see each other means that everybody is dehumanizing each other to some degree just because we've turned from humans that we sat down at a table and shared a meal with to somebody that we see on a screen way too many times a week using a, a video chat app that we would rather not use for the hundredth time this week. And it just, you know, it, trying to figure out how to pull some humanity out of that, how to care for the people that you manage while at the same time, not let the business come to a grinding screeching halt. And that's a really hard set of things to try to balance.
2: You know, you, you said a word that set something off in me too, where you talked, you said that, um, one of the ways that remote teams, to say nothing of the fact that people used to go in an office are, are you know affected more by this, but even remote teams find sustainability in periodic person-to-person contact. It actually, there is a direct link between humanization and sustainability. If the functioning of this company is, even though the company itself is not a person, uh, sorry Mitt Romney, uh, but it is a collective of people with shared or similar or related goals. Um, And, and if you want that to be sustainable, you actually have to recognize the humanity of the people involved. And it is actually, I hadn't thought about that before, Nick, that is, I think really profound that a lot of the burnout that we're currently experiencing is dehumanization of being a, a, a video screen in a box for other people to sing and dance for, for a year at a stretch without, having, you know, finding yourself in a different context with them and reconnecting with them on a human to human level and realizing, Hey, I'm, I have a job title. I also have kids and I play guitar, not very well. And I like to joke around and this isn't my whole personality is, is Mr. manager in a box and not getting to share that with the people I work with is exhausting on top of trying to manage that existence for all the people that you manage directly and indirectly so is this a thing that we wait out until it's you know we can see each other again or is this a thing that if we acknowledge we could theoretically do something about
1: i mean i think i think the latter is true because we've had some pretty frank conversations um among my group about this exact thing. And we've done some things, you know, some of the the things where you try to introduce some non-work context into Zoom calls and you spend time chatting and make margins on the edge of calls, have special events for people to get together and do non-work things over Zoom and just hang out together. But at, at the end of the day, I don't know that there's anything that you can do over video chat that ultimately lets you build the the connections that you can build face-to-face in person. I mean, if you think back even to the open source movement where you have developers scattered all around the world, they still got together on a regular basis at conferences to hang out together and to figure yeah. out how to, how to guide that project that they were working on together forward. I mean, it's like Zoom's a great snack. Zoom can, can sustain you for like six months, maybe nine if you really squint. But you need that time spent in a room together, drawing crap on a whiteboard and then going to dinner afterwards to build the the rapport and the relationship that let Zoom sustain you for six to nine months until you can get together in person again.
2: I love that line. Zoom's a great snack. Like, yeah, man, we've been eating granola bars out here in the wilderness for a year and it's getting real old. <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't know that I would call it a snack. I would call it soil it. <laughs> <laughs> it 100% can totally replace everything that that uh, you normally eat
2: except for joy except
0: for joy uh, and you might feel a little gassy after a couple months of it
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh but yeah i think you know to 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 bring us towards kind of where i think we're going here i think i think this is actually the the crux of what we're discussing here is that as a manager you are caught at that crossroads on a regular basis where you have to figure out how in one hand to balance the humanity of the people that, that you lead and that you manage and the responsibility that your decisions can have a profound impact on, on their livelihood and their ability to make a paycheck on, on a regular basis. And on the other hand, the business that pays the same paycheck to you to make sure that, that everybody in your organization is able to work together and to make the progress that your company needs them to make. And it's a tension that is, it's, it's a healthy tension, but it's a tension that when you're first managing, it's really easy to pretend that it's not even there. And you can just ignore the company side of it and just really focus on the people and the individuals and trust that it's all going to work out. Um, Especially if you're a more human oriented manager, I think that's a very natural course of thinking, but eventually it's going to bite you if you don't learn how to productively hold those two things in tension and find the right compromise amidst that tension.
0: And I think it's a sliding scale and to bring it back to the, the advice that kicked off this whole conversation, the further you move up that ladder, the more that sliding scale slides. Um And it's still a scale. It's not a, you have to do this at this particular point of view or at this particular position. Um, I think there's a range and every, every VP is going to approach it differently. Every CTO is going to approach it differently. Every manager is going to approach it differently. Um, but recognizing that it's there and not just pretending that it doesn't is the thing that allows you to be productive as you move up those, those roles. And honestly, not pretending that it doesn't exist as a individual contributor on a team, regardless of your position in it um, will help you in those roles. Uh, Because now you start thinking about, okay, I'm a junior developer. How am I adding value to this team? Okay. I'm a staff engineer on this team. How do I add value to this team? Um, How do I fit into this broader picture? That's not a bad thing to do um, as an, as an IC. Um, And, you're gonna make everyone above you's job a whole lot easier, uh, and that calculus will rarely, uh, or calculation will rarely come out against you when you're trying to figure out. Okay, we have six people on the bus and we've got four seats. If somebody has been focusing their work on how do I add value, how do I make sure that I'm having the biggest impact for the broader team. Um, And not just how do I get to work on the cool stuff that I want to do and work in the languages that I want to work in. You're probably setting yourself up to be one of the four people that makes that jump.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably more productive. I mean, there's there's two courses as an individual contributor. When you hear yourself called a resource, you can get mad about it or you can figure out what that means. And, And it's a much more productive course of action to figure out what that means and what posture that leads you to take towards the organization you work for?
2: Yeah, I was thinking about the, uh, something similar, uh, where the word "resource." I've I've worked with people, and and no shade at them, because one of them is a, a a good friend, former boss, and somebody I like and respect a lot. Who for them, it's and it's verboten. It is like anathema to to use the word "resource," and it's like totally get why you would make that a hard and fast rule. I don't actually share that opinion at all. Um, I think that. It is a dangerous term, like all corporate speak, because it can become a thought-terminating cliche. Um, it can it can become a mental shortcut, and that person probably experienced that in prior workplaces where, hey, we use this term so we don't have to acknowledge the humanity of the people, and so saying no, 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 I say people, like, great, that's a personal choice on your part, but my experience is that that's actually not the problem. The problem is um, is allowing that that to not have to ever toggle back into, Hey, all right. So we have like, I don't mind being called a resource personally. Like I have said the phrase probably in the past, think of me as as a resource for you. Um, I think like a library is a resource, um, uh, something positive and, and nourishing to, to other people. That's great. Now, you know, like water is a resource like this. These can be very good Mm -hmm. things, uh, life-giving things. And I think that probably was the original intent of human resources as a term, like, "Hey, what what have we thought of people as a, a na- beautiful, naturally occurring resource?" And then the strip miners came for it, and were like, "Oh no!" <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I don't I don't have the same tr- you know trip of a trigger about uh, the term resources, but I do think um, it, it it calls into question about whose needs are being um, recognized right now hey are my need like uh, are my needs as an individual being recognized right now or or are we in sort of like total company mode? okay that's fine We'll come back to me though right and and um, if the, if it never comes back to you then you know you know the nature of the relationship and that's a data and not all companies operate that way you don't have to you don't necessarily have to work in those types of workplaces so I'm not saying quit your job but it's health it's healthy and good to know.
0: Well, it could also be a very freeing thing, depending on how you approach it. Um, If you're putting in a ton of emotional labor to fit into an organization and become, quote unquote, part of the family, um, and that organization thinks about you as a resource, well, maybe you can reevaluate how you're spending your time. Um, (laughs) If it's the dehumanizing aspect. Now, if it's the hey there are a whole bunch of individuals but we think about this in terms of what are the resources we need as an entire team and how do we function to move forward maybe that's a good thing and i think there's i I think this is a term that's that's like technology there's good and bad uses of it i think that's a theme we've come back to a couple of times in this conversation um and figuring out how how the leadership in your organization views that term can be very, very enlightening. Then it's up to you to figure out how you want to, what your reaction to that enlightenment is going to
2: be. Yeah. I really like the direction you're heading with that because um, it makes me think of your job as a manager is partially to connect people with their role in that in order to understand that role they need to understand the collective need hey collectively we need to do these things and you ought to be able to back that up with why if you can't back it up with why um and it's you know like a vp asked us to do this or whatever you know be it's engage your skepticism on that one um because those are often not sustainable but hey we're trying to do this this is a goal of the company Uh, we need somebody in a position like yours to be doing something like this. I think your job as a manager is to help clarify that for an individual so that periodically my experience is on a once a month cadence. They have a really, um, really clear link between global objectives, let's say on a quarterly basis and what they're doing week to week, month to month, um, and, and that satisfies, in my experience, that satisfies the the need to understand the transaction. Hey, what is going on here? What are we trying to do? Okay, so I'm working on this thing, and and if I do this thing, and if I don't do this thing, we can't do collectively this thing? Yes, correct. Okay, great. I'm, you know, like, now you have lots of room to play with other ways, like, of uh, managing that relationship and recognizing and, and um, honoring the humanity of the individuals involved. Um Uh, but as I think that is a huge part of what it is to do this job is to make sure that you're clear on, Hey, what is it that we're collectively trying to do? All right. Well, I have individuals on my team. What's their, what's their part in this? Um, So they're not just sort of like in the code mines. (laughs) Well, it's
0: really interesting listening to you talk about this because it just brings me back to uh, our first, I think our first, maybe our second, uh, podcast where we talked about OKRs in an organization. And like you just described OKRs in the abstract as to what it should be. The organization has these broad objectives. Each individual department or organization inside that company has these things that they're responsible for. And that trickles down to the individuals. And this individual moves this lever in this way that goes all the way back up to this is yeah. the broader goal of what we're trying to do. Um, and I feel yep. like in the the places that I've seen OKRs used and used successfully, um, which tends to be more case studies than actual real world, um, the that's the end goal that you get at. Everyone knows that they're pushing in this direction. And the outcome of pushing in this direction is that these levers get pulled um, to trip this key result that trips this key result that trips this key result that matches this objective five, six, seven layers up that puts us all going in the right direction. So we all are, are working as a cohesive whole.
2: Yeah. I've seen it promised (laughs) and I've seen it in practice where it's, if I do these things and I set, I set these things conservatively enough, then no one will yell at me at the end of the quarter (laughs) we might want to revisit OKRs at some point. Yeah. So, like, more more tips on how to do this successfully, please. Yeah, I feel
0: like we've I think that was one that we, we talked about before Nick was joining us on a regular episode. I was gonna basis. say
2: I have thoughts on this yeah. and I was not here for that episode. Yeah. Oh, yet. oh I, I yeah, I cannot wait to revisit this with Nick <laughs> in the room.
0: <laughs> so the original question I asked y'all was how like what were your thoughts? on the idea of as you move up in an organization, especially as you hit that like mythical transition between a director and a VP, that you need to prioritize thinking about the the organization um, over thinking about the individual. We've weaved around that a couple of different times, but I'm curious, based on the conversation, do y'all have any any actionable advice that you would give to somebody that's moving into management on how they, they, they take that as something that they could be thinking about as they think about their career trajectory and how they might operationalize that in a way that's not dehumanizing. Cause I think we all agree that the dehumanizing aspect of you've got, got these teams of resources and they're all fungible and one developer is as good as the next developer if they have the same experience. Um, that's a bad thing. We don't I don't think any of us on this in this conversation want to to push people in that direction. But how do you operationalize something that has that really dark potential into something that can bolster your team and bolster the individuals on that team? Uh, in a way that's that's good for everyone involved.
1: And the one bit of advice I have on that is to think in modes. So when when you're trying to figure out how to fund a new project that you want to work on, then obviously you're thinking in groups of humans and how many humans can I, how many people can I afford to put on this project? How many people can I afford to pull off this other project? And blah, blah, blah. At, at that point, you're clearly thinking of people as, units of work that can get work done, and how many of these units of work do you need to put on this project to deliver it? At the same time, those units of work are made up of individuals who have individual career trajectories, who are looking for individual opportunities, who need individual chances to shine. And so if if you're at the level that you're making that sort of investment decision of who works on what, then you need to have at least enough context about the people that you're moving around to know who needs that opportunity to know who is, who is best placed has the best skills to be successful in in that new project that you're working on. And and so it is, it's two modes that you kind of have to flip back and forth in thinking of.
0: I think that's great advice. And that's something that I've seen, uh, developers and particularly very senior talented developers have a hard time with, and that's the context switching. Um, I know some developers that just plan on their planning day is just a complete loss because well I can't sit in a meeting for two hours and then get anything else done in the day, because I need a two hour ramp up and three hours of focus time, and then an hour to collect my thoughts. Um, And if I had to paraphrase what, what you just suggested there, Nick, it would be to get good at context switching when it comes to how you uh, approach organizing and managing your teams. Yeah,
1: I think that's right.
2: Yeah, but it doesn't have to happen inside of an hour either. This could be, you know, you might have a strategy day and a tactics day. And I have a very strong opinion that the answer to the question, are the company's needs actually more important than the needs of the people within the company is no. No, it is not. Um, A single individual human being is more valuable than an entire company in my, you know, humanist belief system. Um, that said, context matters a lot, and in the context of work, uh, my my role and my responsibility is to make sure that the company's you know best interests are upheld. That's my professional obligation and my professional responsibility. And if I don't like that, I don't have to do that for a living. But I actually do like it. I do like the shape of this puzzle. I always <laughs> thought I wasn't a puzzle solver as a software developer, but it turns out I love human puzzles. And what Nick described is my favorite, one of my favorite activities is, okay, hold on, hold on. So you told me you need this thing to happen as a company. Company AX needs this thing. I have people A, B, and C. Uh, okay, If I if I talk to A, they're doing this. They have a vacation coming up, so they're not going to be available. Anyway, so you, you know what I'm talking about. Every manager that's done this for a while knows what I'm talking about. Um, you're putting together a puzzle of availability, of needs, career trajectories, um, uh, capabilities, hopes, and dreams, and all the things that make a human a human and, and aligning them into a framework that accomplishes a goal that a company wants to achieve. And the shape of that puzzle, if you like solving that kind of puzzles, this might be the job for you because it's really fun. At least at a line manager, uh, Nick, you can confirm deny if that becomes less interesting and as you move up and it becomes or, – or does it stay interesting? Like it gets that? more
1: interesting as you move up uh, because you have more projects to choose between. Um, now, it can get pathological. This is where organizations that reorg every three months go wrong Mm and having a little too much fun moving the pieces around and forgetting that the pieces are actually human. Um, But if you're careful and conscientious in how you do it and you spend a lot of time talking to folks and figuring out the right opportunities for the right people, um, then being in a director role actually just gives you more opportunities to do this exact shape of puzzle solving.
2: So to to me, that's really good to hear, by the way. Um, I'm glad to hear that to me the sales pitch that I give for that style of management, it's more laborious as a manager than just kind of like hammering square pegs into round holes. Um, but it's much more rewarding. It's much more likely to succeed. And it's the key to it is it, it's the only sustainable way to do this. Uh, acknowledging the humanity of the people involved is the only way to manage sustainably. And if you're, you know, most organizations will claim they want st- sustainability. So at least you can get them on that one. So my tip is to use the word sustainable. Hey, there's a sustainable way to do this and an unsustainable way, which would you choose? And and your boss will say, "Oh, I want the sustainable one." Okay, well, it's a little more costly. Um the, the sustainable path to management is the one where you put the work in to recognize and, and uphold the humanity of the people you work with. I probably said everything I'm going kind to of sh- how to say on this, so um, I'll end my diatribe. Uh, but but I learned a lot in the course of of this podcast with you, lovely folks. Um, uh, it's been a minute since we've recorded, and I'm really glad we get to do this. I'm a better manager, better question asker, um, uh, just generally better person because we get to do this. Uh, and and uh, just wanted to say thank you to both of you. And to our listeners, your topics that you send us, your questions you send us, please continue sending those to us. Uh, we are on Twitter at Managing Up Show. Uh, we are also individually on Twitter. Uh, I am at Te Viking T E H Viking.
1: I am N Means.
2: And I am at
1: T Good.
2: Just about everywhere. <laughs> Just about everywhere. <laughs> it's part of my brand. And at I'm this up point. on Friendster, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Check out his MySpace page slash T-Swicegood. And thanks, everybody. Hit us up on our MySpace page and leave us a flash cartoon of your questions. And we will see you all next time.
0: Thanks, y'all. See ya.